Hello and welcome to this episode on how corruption is reshaping global politics. I'm Nate Sibley and joining me as always is my co-host uh, Paul Massaro. Uh, we're privileged to be joined today uh, by our friend uh, Tom Firestone. Uh, he is one of the leading uh, lawyers in the US dealing with the issues surrounding kleptocracy that we talk about so much. I wonder, maybe Tom, we could start off by just talking a bit about your background and how you came around to the, uh, working and be so interested in this issue of transnational kleptocracy. Well, well and also, Tom, Tom, remember to mention your KI connection, too, when you tell us this. <laughs> I absolutely will. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, going all the way back, I went to the Soviet Union as a student um, in school in 1982 when Brezhnev was still in office. Um, and I've just had a lifelong interest in that part of the world. I studied it in college and graduate school. And then I worked after law school, I worked as a federal prosecutor in New York, and I prosecuted a lot of Russian organized crime cases in New York. And that led me to a position at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow as the DOJ representative, um, as the DOJ representative at the embassy in Moscow, where I worked on various legal and law enforcement issues for the U.S. government in Moscow. And that, of course, uh, Studying the legal system there, studying organized crime and corruption in Russia, made it clear to me that the cause of the problem is official corruption. There's a close connection between organized crime and official corruption. And of course, that leads one to want to combat money laundering and the infiltration of dirty Russian money into the United States. No, that's that's great, of course. Um, so, you know, you, you had this experience within Russia. Um, you know, what, what role do you think corruption sort of played played then when you were there? And how has that changed over time in, in the way that uh, corruption sort of shapes Vladimir Putin's regime, uh, and maybe even drives some of the sort of you know aggressive behavior that we're seeing uh, at the moment with regards to Ukraine and other countries around the world? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think we know exactly what is um, what is driving Putin right now. I think there are multiple factors as far as we can tell. We can't get inside his head, but it seems there seems to be multiple factors. One, having watched his speech uh, last Monday, one can see he's extremely focused on Ukraine, really believes that this is part of Russia and that Russia has a right and even an obligation to take it over. So I think that's part of it. Second is this national security concern, um, NATO expansion that they have been very vocal about. He doesn't want NATO too close to Russia feels that the United States and Western powers are influencing Ukraine. And then third, I think, is coming back to your question about corruption, is the demonstration effect. Anne Applebaum has made this point very well, that what they're really concerned about is the example of a free, democratic, prosperous Ukraine on their border, lest that be a demonstration and a um, example for the Russian population. And so I think that corruption, obviously, in any re a corrupt regime always has an um, always has an interest in trying to divert the pop the attention of its own population from its own failures. Corrupt regimes typically deliver very little to their own populations because they are stealing from them. In order to divert the attention of the population, they tend to fabricate enemies, both internal and external enemies. A war is a great way to divert the population, the attention of the population, and say to the population, no, it's not us who are the problem. It's these guys. It's this internal minority group. It's that foreign group. They're trying to undermine us. That can be used to explain economic failures in the country, which are in reality the result of corruption. So I think that corruption, one thing I think we have to realize when we talk about corruption generally is that 
Corruption is not just an economic or political issue. It is a national security issue. Corruption is a driver of foreign aggression for exactly the reasons that I'm talking about. And so that's why I think this is one of the most important topics and why I think that corruption, anti-corruption has to be front and center of any national security policy. Wow, Tom, I'm so glad we could get you on the podcast. Boy, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like you just read from like the KI Bible, you know? And in fact, in fact, Tom actually um has published a KI report in the past. So it was a that was like the first ever kleptocracy initiative report, isn't that right, Nate? Before I even joined uh, the Kleptocracy Initiative m- many years ago, so uh, it was our first ever publication, Cleaning Up Atlantis, and uh, the, uh, it was a it was actually a case study sort of um Correct me, you, you may not remember, I'm sure you've done a lot of work since then, Tom, but I think it was basically uh, using Atlantis as a surrogate for sort of for Ukraine. Uh, it was um, talking about what steps you would take uh, to try and strengthen and fortify, you know, an emerging sort of, demo- well, a struggling sort of demo- fragile democracy, whatever you want to call it, uh, like Ukraine was at the time. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I can't remember. Uh, I didn't I didn't check it before we came online, I'm, I'm afraid. But um, is, is your sort of view of... Um, I guess it brings us to a sort of interesting question. Do you think, uh, you know, in the time that you've worked on this, um, you know, all eyes are on the Ukraine. I should have said at the start, we're recording this uh, on Friday, February 25th, uh, in the middle of uh, Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion. You know, everyone is, is backing Ukraine now. Uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, our, our thoughts are with them, all the rest of it. You know, people are pushing for more support and so on and so forth. Um, but Ukraine has, has struggled with corruption uh, in terms of its journey towards a stronger democracy. Um, can you talk about some of the sort of main problems you think have have held Ukraine back in terms of, um, you know, emerging as, as a sort of the vibrant democracy and, you know, place that adheres to the rule of law that it was it was clearly on. Well, hopefully, I, I think at least on the trajectory to becoming before uh, Vladimir Putin decided to intervene. Well, I think we have to remember there is a lot of corruption in Ukraine, but it's also been a functioning democracy. They have had real elections. They've yep. had real changes of government, which is rare in the world in general, unfortunately, and especially in the former Soviet republics. Um, I do think there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of corruption. There's a lot of, there are disproportion of power exercised over the economy and the polity by certain oligarchic clans. We all know who they are. We all know where they're based. That has been the problem. That, I think, is a direct result of the Soviet system. Obviously, we all know the problems of the 1990s, the rigged privatization. Certain people got very rich very quickly, were able to use that to influence politics. Ukraine was no exception. So I think those are the problems. But I do think that Ukraine was trying to make real strides. I was a member of an anti, I was a member of a commission appointed to select the head of the Office of Asset Recovery in 2016. I am still technically a member of the commission to choose the special anti-corruption prosecutor. There were a lot of these commissions. There was a real focus on transparency. All of our meetings were broadcast publicly. They all included foreign experts in order to lend transparency to them. So I think that, you know, it wasn't an easy path. It never is. There was a lot of conflict. There was resistance. There was pushback. But I think the anti-corruption activists on the ground in Ukraine really did heroic work. They pushed the government in a lot of these directions with the support of foreign donors. And I think that that was gradually moving the country in the, in the right direction. And if it all ends, we'll have to see how this plays out. But if it all ends, I think that will be a real setback for the cause of anti-corruption and transparency around the world. So let's let's do the same thing then for for the neighbor, for the aggressor, for Russia. I mean, I mean, here's a country where you I mean, you were resident legal advisor. You 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 helped them to write their anti-corruption laws and criminal code, right? I mean, I mean, you know, some then, of them, some provisions, not the some thing. provisions. Yeah. I, I, I normally, whenever I'm with Tom and we're out 
having drinks. I normally describe Tom as the writer of Russia's entire criminal code. This is this guy. This guy wrote the whole thing. He's to blame, you know. So, 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 but, but, I mean, okay. So, so what? I mean, what, what happened here? You know, like, I mean, like, like, and, and what is the future for Russia? You know, I mean, you know, it, it certainly seems like the opposite has happened, as opposed to getting a vibrant, you know, anti-corruption fighting community. But before this, immediately before this invasion, Putin had uh, killed the uh, shot in the back of the head. The main opposition activist, the new main opposition activist, was jailed. Uh, after being poisoned, another opposition politician poisoned twice. Uh, the entire free media chased out of the country. The civil society chased out of the country. I mean, I mean, it's really important to know, and I don't think this is well known, that this aggression is happening in you know with the backdrop in Russia of the worst repression we've seen since Soviet times. I mean, I mean, it is totally out of control. Dissident voices are not tolerated in Russia. I mean, that seems like the opposite of Ukraine. Ukraine is many things. Um, and it does have its problems, but boy, it is a it is a loud vocal society with a lot of competing interests. And I mean, pluralism is part of democracy. You know, the the ha- being able to express your opinions is really at the end of the day the the freedom of expression, the freedom of press. I mean, these things are the freedoms that underpin all other freedoms. There is no freedom without freedom of expression. Well, I completely I completely agree with you. Ukraine, there is a there is a competing viewpoints, if nothing else. One may yeah. agree with all of them, but there is real uh, debate. When I was in Russia, I used to always say the key to a free society. I always this was, you know, before the recent scandals with uh, President Trump. But I always said, look at Watergate, one of our worst scandals in president in history classic case of abuse of political power by a president. He organized basically a private gang to try to obtain compromise on the Democratic Party, something that people, you know, a scenario that a lot of people overseas can relate to. And what saved us from in that situation was really independent judiciary, independent legislature and an independent free press. Those are the foundations of a free society. Um, unfortunately, those I think were starting to develop in Russia in the 1990s. They have not developed for all the reasons you're talking about. Um, what was done to Navalny was obviously outrageous. Um, the government has not allowed these voices to develop or to be heard. And that is that is quite unfortunate. I think that a society, you know, I think freedom of speech, independence of the judiciary, the legislature, I think that those things are important. Just they're consistent with our Western conception of the rights of human beings, fundamental rights. So I think they're important from a moral perspective, but they're also important from an economic perspective, because when you have debate, debate is the best way to drive out bad ideas and to prevent bad policies. Open society, a liberal tolerant society in which people can contribute and participate is the most vibrant society, the one that gets the most economic development, the most productivity. So I think that these values are extremely important from both a moral and an economic perspective. And it is a shame that it has not developed um, in Russia. There seemed, you know, throughout, if we look at the grand scheme of Russian history, there have been times throughout Russian history where the liberal class has emerged. There have been these actors from time to time. They've just never really been able to hold on to power for any length of time. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Right. So I guess, I mean, we've got a Duma that's stacked with a bunch of Putin sycophants. He's surrounded himself and even even gone on, you know, broadcast to the whole world as he embarrassed his National Security Council is, you know, just absolutely humiliated 
uh, his head of, of foreign intelligence with, with you know, an, an, an almost death of Stalin kind of style. Like, I mean, this stuff was just unbelievable to watch. You know, I mean, it's how like, I mean, you're getting to a point where you really wonder, like, something's going to come after Putin and Russia. I mean, one way or another, maybe it seems now sooner rather than later, but one way or another, there's going to be a rush after Putin. Um, and I mean, what do you do when he has trashed every institution, perverted all these laws and the constitution and everything else to, to suit his personalist kleptocratic dictatorship? I mean, I mean, what do you, what do you anticipate? I mean, is there, is there, is there a future for, you know, uh, uh, some kind of future where these values can return to Russia? Well, no one, obviously no one knows what's going to happen after Putin, uh, after Putin goes. Um, one thing we can say for sure, there's no succession mechanism in place. There's no obvious successor. He set things up so that everybody's sort of on um, on the defensive. Nobody can get too powerful while he's still alive, lest they challenge him. So we have a potential for a devolution into a Hobbesian state of nature. There, the institutions are weak. There's no set of rules for succession. So it could just be every, you know, a classic kind of um, state of nature preemptive strikes. Nasty, brutish, and short. That is one distinct possibility. I think we all pray that that does not happen. That would not be good for anyone. That's one possibility. On the other hand, I remember being in discussions in the late 1980s, you know, what's going to happen, you know, after, or in, the, in school in the 80s, early 80s, after Brezhnev, after Andropov, you know, if Gorbachev goes, what's going to happen? There was never a clear-cut succession mechanism. Yet somehow the system has always gotten through these successions. I mean, after Stalin, there, you know, Khrushchev came to the fore. He was removed. He wasn't executed. There weren't purges when Khrushchev was removed. Um, Brezhnev passed away. There were interim leaders. Gorbachev came in. He was also removed, but is still alive. So the system has somehow gotten through the previous successions. They may not have been seamless, but they weren't bloody, violent civil wars either. So my hope is that there is some sort of um, relatively orderly succession, bloodless succession, and then a different element within the regime that is more um, open to um, uh, dissent, tolerance, liberal reforming regime will come in and open the system up again. I mean, we've seen this throughout Russian history over and over again. There's a period of liberalism, there's a period of reaction, and then there's a recognition that the reactionary policies do not put the country in a good position economically or even from a security perspective because military security is undergirded by economic strength. And if you have a system which squelches economic development, squelches entrepreneurship, that has a ripple effect all the way on to national security. So we can only hope that there will be a relatively uh, orderly, bloodless succession and a new regime coming to power that with whom we can do business and that will open things up domestically without creating the kind of chaos that we saw in the 1990s the Russians are understandably suspicious of. Yeah, right. So so with all of this in mind, I mean, we're, we're, we are now, I mean, you know, watch the president's speech yesterday and, and, and you know, it, we're, in a, we're at a point where, you know, after 30 years of trying to make it work, right, trying to integrate Russia with the wider world and have a global economic integration and everybody's going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to work out. 
okay, oh, okay, now we have some t- oligarchs in our society. Well, they're going to turn around and be entre- entrepreneurs or something. Nope, nope. Now we got a dictatorship in Russia and, and it's just going downhill, going down. Okay. Um, well, now we're finally there. I mean, I mean, it's, I can sense it in the air. I, I feel it every day. We are at the point where we are in isolate Russia mode, a, a place we probably should have been at after the invasion of Georgia in 2008. And if not, then maybe the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And if not, then maybe the election interference in 2006. But, but you know, like the list goes on, but, but I mean, we are there now. So I, I guess I, I wonder like from your perspective, like wh- what is the appropriate Western reaction now? Like how, how do we, how do we, how do we contain, I suppose, but then also like deal with, you know, the Putin regime that is now in the, in this kind of recognition of, of, I, I don't know, this, this roided out, you know, <laughs> quasi madman that keeps appearing on TV. Well, I think the administration is doing exactly the right things. Um, you know, we've, the president made a clear statement that he was not going to send troops to Ukraine. There would not have been domestic support for that. So that didn't happen. And we all see what's happening in Ukraine now. But I think that they are making every effort to strengthen the NATO countries. And that to me is the that's what we've really got to watch for. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine is a horrific tragedy. Um, at this point, I think our, we've got to hope that it will remain, it will not spill beyond Ukraine to Poland, Lithuania, Moldova, Romania, the neighboring countries. Um, that is really the nightmare scenario. And I think the administration is doing the right thing, which is fortifying the NATO presence in those countries um, and sanctioning um, sanctioning Russia. I think those are all important steps. I mean, everyone says, well, the sanctions don't work. They don't change behavior. That's true in most cases and certainly in this case, but it's they still have a value as a punitive mechanism. Um, we cannot let these things go unanswered. It is going to take a toll on the Russian economy. It's going to force the Russians to turn to China to sell a lot of their um, natural resources, to sell oil and gas. That will put them in a weak bargaining position with the Chinese. So they will suffer economically as a result of this. And I think that given where we are and what the U.S. population will support at this time, that's about as much as we can do right now. Strong sanctions, condemnation throughout of these actions in lockstep with our European allies and a very and fortifying uh, the NATO presence in the neighboring countries. So, so prior to us sort of starting the recording, we'd we'd kind of talk through a scenario where this could spill from Ukraine into another into another country, perhaps even a NATO country. Can you walk us through how? I mean, you were you were you were laying out, I thought, a very interesting case of of how one might imagine that happening. Well, the night again, the nightmare scenario, I'm hoping this doesn't happen. I'm not saying it's likely, but it also cannot be excluded, is that we see, you know, and Russia occupies Ukraine. There is an endless, a forever war in Ukraine, a guerrilla partisan war in Ukraine um, that those elements in Ukraine fighting the regime are getting weapons and support from overseas, perhaps from the diaspora, um, perhaps from the diaspora in um, uh, Poland, Lithuania, wherever the Ukrainian population will migrate to. And it appears to be logically um, the majority of them are going to Poland. And then what happens if the Russian government takes the position that this, you know, they will label it a terrorist um, operation in Ukraine, the guerrillas, you know, they will label terrorists. And they'll say they are being supported and given um, uh, 
uh, arms, weapons, and other forms of support from these neighboring countries, Poland, Lithuania, wherever else they might be. And then they may launch strikes into the raids into those countries in order to root out terrorism at its source, as they will characterize it. Then we've got a military incursion into a NATO country. What happens then? That, to me, is really the nightmare scenario. I think so, too, which, which, which for me, I guess, doesn't that speak to stopping them in Ukraine? Like, I mean, is there, is there, is there a scenario where Putin finds Jesus, I guess, and walks this back? Or, or is this going to be, is this extinction for him? You know, I mean, a total speculation, I suppose. I have to say a lot of people asked me that up until this week, what's going to happen? My prediction was that there would be a limited incursion focused on the Donbass. And I said, if you look at Putin's history, his MO has been, you know, limited incursions, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Crimea, to get sort of the maximum possible uh, benefit with the least expenditure of resources. So I thought that was what we're going to see. I did not anticipate the maximalist um, right. scenario that we have seen unfold in Ukraine. So I am hesitant to uh, predict what's going, what's, what Putin's next move is. We can only see what's happening right now and the broad-based attack throughout Ukraine. And um, it would be great if there were a way to walk this back now. I think that we have crossed that point, unfortunately. Just maybe like a final question. One of the one of the distinguishing features of Putin's kleptocracy, and indeed all, all the sort of kleptocracies in, in the region in which you, you've done so much work and so much so much good, uh, is their, their their dependence on sort of what we call Western enablers uh, to to launder money and whitewash reputations in the West. Um, as a as a lawyer, sort of, uh, what what are your sort of views on what are the major steps we need to take to to curtail um, you know the sort of the way in which they're able to take advantage uh, of the professional services that the West offers at the same time. Uh, as opposing us, uh, you know, at this point, sort of even militarily, right? No, it's a great question, a subject really for a whole nother, uh, whole nother day. And I know that you and Paul have both done a lot of work on this issue. I just want to say that the professions themselves are not enablers. It's only certain um, uh, unethical people within these professions who are, are enablers. And in fact, when you have ethical lawyers, ethical accountants, ethical bankers, they can be the most effective uh, gatekeepers against the infiltration of dirty money into the country. So I think that all the things that we have all discussed before, transparency around these transactions, identification of beneficial ownership, um, before you enter into a transaction, before you take money from overseas, know who is on the other side of the transaction and do due diligence on them. I mean, certainly my law firm does very thorough due diligence before we open up any client for exactly this reason. From a legal perspective, we want to make sure it's not dirty money and also from a reputational perspective. And I think that's the appropriate approach. I think that needs to be incentivized through transparency requirements. And if somebody is knowingly taking dirty money and helping the the source to hide it, they need to be criminally prosecuted. That is why we have money laundering statutes. We didn't have them until the late 1980s, but they're there exactly for this purpose. Dude, I mean, the money laundering statutes were really designed against drug dealers and mafia uh, mafiosi to prevent them from using the criminal their criminal proceeds. I think they are equally applicable in this context. It requires investigation and um, uh, investigation, and then punishment for those who knowingly help to hide criminal proceeds. So I think a, a concerted law enforcement effort on this, I'll just say in this regard, you know, the U.S. law enforcement, a lot of it has been focused in the FCPA area, when we talk about international corruption, has been focused in the area of FCPA, i.e. looking at what U.S. companies are doing 
overseas and prosecuting them. There's been less attention on the flip side of foreign activity in the United States. I think that's all changing now, and I think there should be equal attention on that. And I think we're going to see expanded regulations around the professions, which, if abused, can facilitate this kind of activity. Well, and I hope you'll have me back for a separate post. discussion just on that subject. No, of course, no, we could have gone back and forth with you on any of the, the great questions that Paul asked you, uh, and, uh, and then indeed that final issue for, for another couple of hours, I think. But I know you have a hard stop, and we're very grateful for your, for your time today. Uh, and we hope to have you back on the podcast to expand on all that, all that stuff soon. Paul, We're going to do a Tom 2, okay? <laughs> Tom, a you know, Tom you 2. You guys know where to find me, so you that, can... That's right. We're going to do, do a Tom 2 on the professions. All right. So... Everybody look forward to it. All the listeners, Tom, Tom's coming back. Thanks, Tom. Thank you so much, you guys. Making a Killing is produced by Phil Hegseth and kindly supported by the Kleptocracy Initiative's parent organization, Hudson Institute. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, please subscribe and share with your friends. And if you have time please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts as it really helps get the word out. That's all from us. We'll be back next time.